Hello, this is Christopher Eck. I am the lead pastor at Bethany Covenant Church in Bedford, New Hampshire. Welcome to our podcast. I hope this message inspires, helps, and encourages you as you seek to live your life with Jesus. For more information about our church or to support the ministry, visit BethanyCovenant.com. Enjoy the message. Our scripture passage from this morning is from Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The logo for the series is the statue David by Michelangelo. And the Renaissance painter and sculptor Giorgio Vasari, he said about this work, he says, When the sculpture was finished, it cannot be denied that this work has carried off the palm from all other statues. That's an old-timey expression that means that it was winning or gaining victory, that it was the best statue that's ever been made. That it carried off the palm from all other statues, modern or ancient, Greek or Latin. No other artwork is equal to it in any respect. With such proportion, beauty, and excellence did Michelangelo finish it. The block of marble used by Michelangelo was originally excavated to be a statue in 1464, and the first sculptor that was commissioned to work with the sculpture looked at this block and said, I can't work with this, it's flawed, it'll fall apart. The second sculptor that they got to look at this piece of marble said it's of poor quality and way too brittle to work with. And so for for over 25 years, this people of marble sat in storage in a church. And knowing church storage areas, I would not be surprised if we have something like that in our church somewhere now. (laughs) It sat in a church in Florence. And the mayor of Florence He tried to save this block, and he tried to commission Leonardo da Vinci to work on it and other masters, but everybody agreed that it could not be worked on. Michelangelo was only 26 at the time and living in Rome, and he had friends in Florence who go to the mayor and said, hey, we know this guy who may be able to do that. The mayor's hesitant at first, but eventually commissions Michelangelo to carve from this piece of marble. And from a flawed piece of marble that nobody else wanted to work with, Michelangelo carves arguably the greatest and most famous statue of all time at the age of 26. That fits the series of perfect, imperfect so well. We all have our flaws and our imperfections, but it is Jesus and God that carves out something greater than we ever could have expected from them. For Isaiah 64, 8 says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. And so in this series, Perfect, 
talks about God, that we stand before a perfect God. The imperfect is about us. And daily we face our imperfections before God. And if we can learn daily how to face our imperfections before a perfect God, that is a path to growth and that is the path to healing. And last week we talked about how freeing confession is for us. And we need to be able to confess them, to be able to talk to God, that whenever people were around Jesus, things came pouring out to Jesus. And not just like the surface stuff, but the very personal stuff. And that's what we carry around every day, the very personal flaws and imperfections and insecurities and sins. We carry around those. We hold those very, very closely, hoping that maybe others won't see them because they are that personal to us. And we've talked about ways that we try and shine the light on other parts of our life to kind of keep that, those parts in the darkness. And we've talked about performance and appearance and relationships and moral superiority as ways that if we can shine enough light on those parts of our lives, then we can kind of keep the flaws and imperfections off here to the side and we don't need to deal with them or people don't need to see them. So then you start to decide, well, what level do we need to get to in each of those areas to kind of make sure that the light doesn't shine over there? Like for performance, like what level performance do you feel like you need to reach sometime? Do you need to be above that next person at work or above a sibling? Or do you need to reach the level of a CEO of a Fortune 500 company to kind of reach that place? Like what level of achievement is it? And we kind of set that standard for ourselves or appearance. Like, what level of appearance do we need to reach? Do we need to be, like, front of a magazine good-looking and beautiful? Or have 100,000 followers on Instagram beautiful? Like, we create this standard that we try and reach, that if we can reach that standard, that's going to be enough light here to make sure it doesn't shine there. Or if it's relationships, how perfect does the person need to be that we're in relationship with, that we don't feel our own stuff anymore? Or moral superiority, superiority, how good do we need to be? Follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. Follow the Beatitudes perfectly. Don't play cards. Don't dance. Like, those are some of the old ones, you know. Um, and um, I don't have a moral objection to dancing. Um, people have a personal objection to me dancing. And, like... And so we can kind of like, what standard do we need to reach? And we kind of live with that question. Okay, I need to try and reach this standard or one step higher. And today we're looking at this word grace. And here's what grace says to us when we try and play that great game. Grace says, stop playing that game. It is not what the scriptures invite us to. You'll never perform high enough and never look good enough and never be in a relationship perfect enough. You'll never be morally perfect to the point where all of your imperfections disappear and are just forgotten. At some point, they need to be faced and forgiven, and then they are forgotten. Grace says, enough with that. Stop with that. There is another way. C.S. Lewis walked into an argument one day among his fellow scholars and friends. They were arguing about what was the most unique aspect of Christianity. This was before the NFL and the conversation shifted to things of a much more useless nature. So they're talking about what is the most unique thing of Christianity. And some people said the incarnation. 
But then others said, yeah, but there are other stories of God's coming down to earth and myths that we have that that story's been used before. Some said resurrection. That's the most, you know, kind of unique part. But others countered, yeah, but you can still find, you know, strange stories and myths of people being reborn or reincarnated. It's not exactly the same thing, but similar enough. And some people says, is it the miracles? Well, you have other faiths that may have miracles or surprising things or things that we can't explain. And so when Lewis walked into the room, they asked him the same question. C.S., what's the most important, unique thing about Christianity? And he says, oh, that's easy. And he says, it's grace. Grace is the most unique part of Christianity. And the scriptures are filled with stories of God's grace. That the parable of the lost son, we see that story. We see Paul and his story of grace. We see Peter and his story of grace. And so in the passage today, Paul is trying to show three parts of what grace is. And he's writing to this church on the island of Crete. Crete was a pretty rough place. That the island dwellers of Crete, otherwise known as the Cretans, were notorious for lying and corruption and violence and sexual sin. Like the Greek word for one who is a liar originates from the word to be a Cretan. So like when the actual name of your island kind of becomes your character, that's not a good thing. And so Paul saw kind of a great opportunity to minister on Crete because he knew ships were going out constantly to other parts of the world. So he's taking the city that's full of these kind of people and now beginning to share about God's grace. So in Titus 2.11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all the people. The word appeared here or manifested is kind of set in the idea that it's a king who appears or a god who appears. That this isn't just like, oh, I appeared at a party. Like this is something very important appearing. So grace appears like a king appears or like a god appears. Paul puts weight on it. Grace arrives in that same way. And he says the grace is there for all of us. No one is left out of God's grace. The limitation of God's grace is not how it is offered, it is how it is received. And we're offered the same grace as Peter, and the same grace as the Pope, and the same grace as the people from Crete. Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and not this from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul kind of gives these two, this first idea of grace, and now he gives two more. He says grace not only gives us salvation, he says in 2.11, grace teaches. Grace teaches us in this moment as well. Now, for the people of Crete, they kind of found Jesus, but then they kind of became... Um, they developed this idea in their faith that as long as they said yes to Jesus, they could kind of live however they wanted to live from that day forward, that it was just kind of about believing the right things, and it never really needed to affect the rest of life. Sometimes when we come to Jesus, we go in one of two places. We can go towards legalism, and legalism is where we say, to be loved or accepted, I have to do good works. I have to earn God's love. That's kind of like the basic legalistic way of thinking. 
the opposite way to go, and sometimes the church does this. We swing from legalism all the way to the other side, and that is called antimonianism. Oh, just don't fall asleep as I talk about that. That technically, it means that God's instructions and law doesn't really matter. Only salvation matters. Timothy Keller sums up this attitude well. He says, it's the attitude that God accepts me as I am. He only wants me to be myself. The idea that now we have grace, now we can kind of keep living however we want to live. And that's what the people on Crete were trying to do. And Paul says, no, grace is much bigger than that. That grace is not just about salvation. Grace does these two other things in your life. Grace is there to teach you. One of my favorite sermons during Lent was given by a pastor that we had in Batavia. The title of the sermon was Saying Yes, Saying No. And the whole premise of the sermon was very simple, that for everything we say yes to, we are saying to no to something else. And everything that we say no to, we're saying yes to something else. And Paul writes to this church in Crete and tells them, say no to these things and say yes to these things. So he says, first of all, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That was important for the island of Crete. Their major struggles were lying and corruption and violence and sexual sin, that grace will help them say no to these things in small measure, to help them say no and to move away from these vices. And then Paul says this about grace. Grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That Paul tells them to not just make a major belief change here, but to make a major change in the way that you live. Self-controlled, upright, godly, very different from the list of lying and corrupt and violent and using sex as a cruelty for one's own selfishness. That grace will teach you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And then God, Paul introduces these virtues that are kind of very different from the way that people were living. These are the new character traits that are meant to be woven into people's lives. Grace weaves these character traits into people. And this is very different than legalism. You can't get to self-controlled, upright, and godly through legalism. Very different than antinomianism. You can't get there by only believing the right things. And so Paul says part of grace is the development of these new qualities within. And then the question is, well, how do we grow in these things? Well, if we were going to grow in legalism, like if that was our deal here at Bethany, like we would put you in a class and just teach you all the Old Testament laws and how to follow them. We would teach you kind of all the do's and don'ts and we'd list them all. And if you like did all those do's and don'ts really well, then that'd be like a very legalistic way to live. We could help you grow in legalism very easily here. If we wanted people to grow in antinomianism, we'd have classes on what to believe and then we'd give you a test. Do you believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Yep. Do you believe that, you know, that he is a virgin birth? Yep. I believe in it. Do you believe in it? Okay, great. You believe these things. Now go live however you want to live. And we would just help you kind of live whatever kind of life you wanted to live. We could set up a class like that here if we were going to do that. 
but how do we teach virtue? How do we teach these ideas of godliness and uprightness and self-control? Well, the philosophers, theologians, Jesus, they show us how to learn these things in life. And they said that there are two ways to kind of grow in these attributes in our life. And the first one is this. Is the first is we learn virtue. We learn self-control and uprightness and godliness through imitation. We learn virtuous behaviors by following the example of people who are self-controlled and compassionate and kind and loving. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Philippians 3.17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul is saying, if you want to grow in this, look for people to imitate, look for people to follow. Like a child who learns to throw a ball by imitating a parent, or an apprentice that learns how to craft something of great beauty by watching the master, or an athlete who studies the movement of the greatest athletes of all times and tries to incorporate that into their own athletic performance. We learn virtue through imitation. And that's why we need a church of all different backgrounds and maturity levels. And for those of you who are maybe one or two years into a life with Jesus, like we need you here because we draw on your energy. We draw on your passion. We draw on your questions. We draw on the new life that you have. And for somebody who has been in church and followed Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years, we need you to imitate. And Bethany has had some dear, dear people that we have imitated that led us into life. People like Ruth and people like Jean and people like Lynn and people like Alan. They're not here with us anymore, but we have imitated their faith and their life. Part of grace is growing in virtue. And part of growing in virtue is imitation. The second way that we grow in virtue, that we grow in self-control and uprightness and godliness is through practice. We have to put ourselves in places where we begin to practice these things in life. When I was in college, they had a thing at North Park called Urban Outreach. They had about 15 or 20 different ministries that you could sign up for. Um, I signed up for the ministry where we would go to the hospital on L5, which is one of the wings of the hospital, one of the toughest floors in the hospital to visit. And I signed up to make visits to that wing to people who lived there. I had no skills or abilities to make good visits. But every visit there, even though they were tiring, like it helped me grow that compassion muscle a little bit. Help me grow that kind of like ability to listen just a little bit more. None of us like begin with those qualities that are perfect, but we can grow them and develop through, through practice and struggle. We grow with them through kind of those friction moments of life. That's how the growth happens. Most growth comes from places of struggle, 
Most growth comes because we put ourselves in places where we're a little bit uncomfortable. And the fact is that when we put ourselves there, there's always that tendency and that temptation to want to kind of draw back to what we already know. Like when we hit that little bit of a struggle point or friction point or that little place that we can't go, like we just want to back up and go back to what we know. And then we're kind of like end that growth a little bit. So like I hit that point in math when I got to the seventh grade. Like the seventh grade, I don't know what we did in math, but I all of a sudden started to struggle in math in the seventh grade. Like I hit that point, and if it was up to me, you know what I would have done? I would have gone back to fifth grade math because I knew that already. Like, oh, just put me back to what I already know. Now, it wasn't up to me. It was up to Mrs. Scopoletti House and my mom, and they made sure that I stayed in seventh grade math because they knew that I needed to push through the struggle and grow and develop. We grow in the virtue of loving by loving in the most difficult circumstances. We grow in the virtue of patience by waiting when we don't want to wait. We grow in the virtue of godliness by incorporating godly activities like giving and sacrificing into our lives. We grow in the virtue of being upright or just by, listen, by listening to the stories of those who are maybe off to the margins and hearing about their experience. We grow in the virtue of courage by taking risks that are uncomfortable. And so Paul says to these people in Crete that grace is not just like this free gift that we get that's about salvation. Grace actually teaches you to say no to some things, and grace teaches you to say yes to other things, to begin to develop and have these character traits woven into your life. And then he gives this key phrase in the text. He says, you're to live this way in this present age. This is the way you are to be in this present age, that you're not in a relationship with Jesus just for heaven. He gets to that in a minute. But Paul says you are to live this way in this present age. Thomas Oden, looking at this idea in Crete, he said, some would argue that it would do little good to begin in Crete of all places with the tiniest bits of behavior and try to reshape the world towards godliness from the ground up. It might seem at first that the pastoral effect was too microscopic, inordinately micromanaged, and that systemic, institutional, or political evils might better have been first addressed. Yet this is just the point most misunderstood by systemic reformers who have not adequately grasped the apostles' way of transformation. Paul and Luke believed that Christian ethics was a matter of reforming things from within the community and from the bottom and the smallest parts up. And he says, Paul could have gone, it's like, you got to change the whole island right now. Change the structures, change the system. No, Paul says, you got to change yourself first. And the little steps that you take in the culture begins to change everything else. Grace appears to save us. Grace teaches us what is ungodly and worldly, grace teaches us to grow in these new virtues. We live those in this present age, and then Paul says, we do this while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself of people that are his very own 
eager to do what is good. He says, be eager to do what is good. None of us will be perfect. That ship has sailed long, long ago. But goodness and being eager to be good, that is within our grasp every single day. We do that through imitation. We do it through practice. Michelangelo, when he reached the end of his life, he was plagued at the end of his life by the constant high demand that people had for his artwork. And as he approached his death, he had kind of the spiritual rebirth that happened. And one of his final works was kind of a thing where he was in the guise of Nicodemus as one who was born again. He kind of sculpted himself into this one final thing, and he wrote a poem. It sits on the opposite wall of where this sculpture is. And in the poem, Michelangelo describes coming to the end of his life and seeing that his artwork was actually harmful to his soul because it had become my idol and my king. Like you recognize, like my whole kind of how I felt about myself went because of my artwork. And at the end of the day, he says this. He says, I don't trust that anymore, but I trust now the divine love who to embrace us opened his arms upon the cross. And Michelangelo at the end of his life said, I need grace. I can't win my way through sculpting into God's good graces. I need the grace that only comes from Christ on the cross. Today we come to celebrate the grace of God at the table. We need it for ourselves. We need it for the world. We need it for our forgiveness. We need it for our healing. We need it for our growth. Today, as we come to the table, we're going to begin by confessing our sins. And so I invite you to stand as we will share this corporate prayer and confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. You may be seated.